0: I think that for there to be a real improvement in property rights in this country, we need lawmakers to get in the game and, and end civil forfeiture.
1: This really was an important and historic decision, and in one of those cases that, you know, make me uh, very happy and proud that I cover the Supreme Court.
2: Welcome to the award winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer. With J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
3: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out called How to Get Sued and the Sled. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C L I O.com. Back in 2013, Tyson Tim's $42,000 Land Rover was seized by the police after he was arrested and charged with selling only $400 worth of heroin. After Tim's and his attorneys filed suit, his case went from the Indiana State Court all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in a unanimous Supreme Court ruling called Tim's versus Indiana, now requires cities and states, not just the federal government, to abide by the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause, preventing law enforcement from imposing excessive fines in seizure cases, setting up a historical precedent. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the Supreme Court ruling in Timms versus Indiana. We'll discuss the case, the ruling, and the impact on future cases. And to do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topic is Wesley a Senior Attorney for the Institute of Justice. He won the landmark case of Timms versus Indiana in the Supreme Court that established that the state and local authorities must comply with the Excessive Fines Clause of the Eighth Amendment when they attempt to forfeit property. Welcome to the show, Wesley. Thanks for having me. And our next guest is Tony Morrow, the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal and Law.com. Tony's covered the Supreme Court for 39 years, first for Gannett News Service in USA Today, and then since the turn of the century, for Legal Times, the National Law Journal, and now the Supreme Court Brief, a subscription newsletter about the court. Welcome back to the show, Tony. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, Wesley, it seems only right, since you were the attorney, that uh, you straighten out my little shorthand introduction of the case and kind of give us a background of what happened and give us a little bit of guidance about what happened in your case today.
0: Well, you're right that in 2013, when Tyson Thames was caught up in a Um, a drug deal involving undercover officers that, in addition to, you know, quite righteously prosecuting him for selling a small amount of heroin, the police also seized his $42,000 Land Rover, which at the time was practically brand new. Indiana, unique among all 50 states, allows private attorneys working on contingency to then represent the state in civil forfeiture actions. These, of course, are actions against property, not people, but they're connected to crimes. And the prosecutor in this case uh, attempted to, to take the vehicle. The trial judge in rural Grant County, Indiana, said you can't do that. That violates the Eighth Amendment Successive Fines Clause. The Intermediate Court of Appeals in Indiana agreed, and then the Indiana Supreme Court held that the Eighth Amendment Successive Fines Clause does not apply in state or local proceedings because the U.S. Supreme Court had never clearly held that it does. We took over the case at that point to petition for cert. We got cert last June, argued the case last November, and then on February 20th, we got a unanimous ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court saying, no, that's incorrect. The Eighth Amendment Successive Fines Clause does apply. In state and local proceedings. So we've now been remanded back to the Indiana Supreme Court.
3: Tony, is this how do we look at this case? I mean, it throughout the appellate court, the local court, uh, was only the Indiana Supreme Court that couldn't understand that the Bill of Rights applies to the states? Was it a provincial ruling or what was their basis for doing that?
1: Well, I think it's a very important ruling, not just related to Indiana, uh, in the sense that, as you know, that not all of the parts of the Bill of Rights have been incorporated or applied to the states uh, and local governments and this this was one of the clauses of the Bill of Rights that had not been applied or it had been applied in many states but the Supreme Court hadn't really finalized and adopted that that view so this this was a case where um the Supreme Court fixed that problem. And I recall during the oral argument, which Wesley will, of course, recall, uh, Justice Gorsuch said, here we are in 2018 still litigating incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Really? Uh, He said, come on, General. He was talking to the Indiana Solicitor General who was arguing against incorporation of the ban on excessive fines. So anyway, I think it's quite a historic decision. I think in my 39 years, I can't recall another case. Well, there probably has been one or two, but where a part of the Federal Bill of Rights expanded its scope to state and local governments as well.
3: Wesley, is there was a lot of discussion about policing for profit. What was the argument in that area?
0: Well, as many of your listeners may know, civil forfeiture is a kind of legal fiction that allows the government to proceed against property in civil court. When that property is alleged to have have some connection to a crime. Uh, now, the procedure used to be a kind of personal jurisdiction tool that the United States and other countries would exercise against pirate ships or rum runners um, for things like customs violations. When 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 you couldn't get personal jurisdiction over the individual ship owner, but you know, beginning about in the mid 80s uh, with the the explosion in the war on drugs this tool has been turned on uh, everyday Americans. Some of them aren't convicted of crimes. Some of them aren't even charged with crimes. This procedure has really exploded because there's a profit incentive built into it. At the federal level and in almost every state, the police and prosecutors who seize property get to keep 100 percent of the proceeds of the property that they see. So it's become a kind of self-funding mechanism, uh, and particularly in a time of, of shrinking budgets and, you know, lawmakers not wanting to ever increase taxes. Increasingly, you have law enforcement kind of living off the land out there. And um, although Tyson was guilty of a crime, he pled guilty and did everything that was asked of him to try to reintegrate into society. He suffered the secondary punishment of civil forfeiture, and um, I've had clients at the Institute for Justice who did absolutely nothing wrong and found themselves caught up in this process. And of course, because it's civil, you're not entitled to a lawyer, you're not entitled to a speedy trial, um, and it may take months or even years before you have an opportunity to go before a judge. And argue uh, that your property was was wrongfully taken. Um, so when we talk about policing for profit, what we're talking about is is this explosion in civil forfeiture, where lawmakers have built an incentive into the system for police and prosecutors to take property from people.
3: How does this situation happen when the police recover property, say, on a boat that's on its way into the? into the beach, but there's nobody aboard the boat, and they, they pursue the property and go after it. What happens in those situations when an owner later comes forward? Isn't that essentially saying, that's my property and I've committed the crime? Is there any kind of protection for that?
0: Yes. You know, there are admiralty procedures that we still use today for civil forfeiture actions, even those on land. There are abandoned property procedures that make this easy when the government finds, you know, a car that no one claims or a ship that's just adrift on the high seas. Uh, But under something called the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act of 2000, at the federal level, innocent owners enjoy an opportunity to come in and object to a forfeiture action. Now, again, because this is not a criminal proceeding, the burden is on that person to prove their own innocence by a preponderance of the evidence. And for many people, that means that you know, they've got a higher attorney, they've got to go through the difficult process of litigation. And for that to be worth it, the property has got to be extremely valuable. You know, many of these seizures and forfeitures involve um, small dollar amounts of currency, less than $5,000. Or if you even take Tyson's case involving a $42,000 vehicle, I mean, if he didn't have pro bono attorneys, it would make no economic sense to pursue recovery of that vehicle. I assure you, we spent many times over that in attorney time alone um, taking this case to the Supreme Court. I mean, he's fortunate that he's represented by the pro bono attorneys at the Institute for Justice, but many people don't contest forfeitures because it's simply not worth it.
3: Tony, there were some unusual strategies employed here. Can you tell us about those?
0: Well. Uh This is kind of a signature
1: strategy of the Institute for Justice, uh, which kind of invented the notion of surrounding a Supreme Court case with a public campaign rallying the public to take a side in this litigation. At first, the Institute of Justice first started this uh, 10 15 years ago, it was seen as kind of unseemly that the court, uh, uh, you know, you shouldn't be lobbying the court in that sense. And it's really not lobbying, but it's just, it's sort of creating some momentum. Uh, they did that with the Kilo case involving eminent domain. Uh, they started, had a campaign against eminent domain abuse and uh, got the whole nation kind of involved in this case. Uh, And to great success. And again, in this case, the uh, excessive fines case that we're talking about, the Institute for Justice had started a kind of a campaign about that issue, uh, that the the police were improperly confiscating the property of uh, people who hadn't really necessarily done anything wrong. And I think that gave momentum to the case as it went to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think it was uh, extremely successful. Uh, it's just, it's something that not
0: everybody does, but the Institute for Justice does it really well.
3: Tell us about that, Wesley.
0: Well, um, IJ's been around for 25 years now. And, and Tony's right that, you know, we, we litigate our cases in court and in the court of public opinion. And unseemly or not, I mean, it's it's a strategy that um, increasingly has been adopted by private lawyers that are trying to get cases granted by the high court, and, and for good reason. You know, we need the public to be more educated about what goes on in the legal system, particularly about issues like civil forfeiture, which, you know, frankly, people don't know about, even the people that are educated in the law people don't know about really until it happens to them or or it happens to one of their clients. I mean, I, I face incredulity all the time when I tell people that your property can be taken from you without you even being charged with a crime, let alone convicted of one. I think it's essential that the public know about this practice and other obscure legal practices and that judges know that the public cares about these things because they're um, you know, for better or worse, there tends to be a, a kind of silo effect between the judiciary and prosecutors, many members of the judiciary that predominantly being former prosecutors. And it's not going to be until the general public and lawmakers really shine a light on these issues that we start to see movement, e- even in areas that the judiciary controls entirely, like constitutional rights.
3: Well, gentlemen, thank you very much. But before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months. When you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. We are joined by Wesley Hoddit, Senior Attorney for the Institute for Justice, and Tony Morrow, Supreme Court Correspondent for the National Law Journal and Law.com. We've been talking about the Supreme Court ruling in TIMS versus Indiana regarding civil forfeiture. Tony, what's, there's been an argument presented in this case that there may be a difference between a fine and a forfeiture, or the, some issue about whether a fine includes a forfeiture. What is the background behind that?
1: Well, to be honest, I'm not I'm not quite sure of that. I don't recall that from the briefs I read, but I probably uh, missed something, so
0: I might defer to Wesley on that point. Well, I'm happy to address it. Yeah, you know, Indiana faced an uphill battle in making the argument that the excessive fines clause isn't incorporated. Tony referred to um, Justice Gorsuch's kind of disbelief that they were even arguing that. And I know the Solicitor General for Indiana, Tom Fisher, he's a good lawyer. And so, you know, given a dog of a case, they made the best of it that they could. And so what they tried to argue was that While the Excessive Fines Clause may apply in state and local proceedings, the Excessive Fines Clause should not apply to forfeitures. Now this was a difficult argument to make because in 1993 the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Austin versus United States, had held that federal forfeiture actions are fines within the meaning of the clause. And so Indiana was forced to argue that while that might be true of federal forfeitures, it shouldn't be true of state forfeitures. They should be kind of a constitution-free zone. You know, it's gratifying that the court recognized incorporation of the clause, but it was um, also gratifying that they rejected that argument, you know, effectively saying—well, not effectively. They they literally say in the majority opinion, we're not going to revisit Austin. And just to add to that, uh, just
1: as a reminder, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the Land Rover would cost about $42,000— that was confiscated, and uh, the maximum fine that Timms would have gotten as a fine for a crime would have been $10,000. So it's hard to conceive of the $42,000 confiscation as not being a fine. So I think uh, the court took care of that that issue.
3: Is there still a question, Tony, in the Supreme Court's mind that the uh, Bill of Rights may not, not all of the Bill of Rights may apply to the states?
1: There are a few lingering clauses that have not yet been incorporated. Uh, Yes, as you mentioned, the the justices seem kind of impatient about that. That It's time to get that over with and get everything that's in the Bill of Rights to apply to state governments. So I think there will be cases coming along. The court court can't just reach out and make that decision. They have to have a, a case before them that poses that. Issue uh, and there's a case coming up, I believe, about whether uh, non-unanimous jury trials are acceptable, or uh, you know whether the right to have a unanimous jury verdict can be incorporated into uh, state and local government as well. And there are, there are a handful of other provisions of the Bill of Rights that could still be incorporated.
0: Yeah, that's right. Tony is absolutely right that that question of whether the Sixth Amendment right to have a unanimous jury verdict um, against you if you're going to be convicted of a crime is up next term in a case called Ramos versus Louisiana. Oregon is the only re- remaining state that allows uh, a jury of 12 people to convict you by 10 votes for conviction, um, even if there are two votes for acquittal. Uh, Louisiana had that practice until uh, last November's election when when the voters passed the constitutional amendment to change it, but the gentleman in the Ramos case was convicted under the old rule, so we'll find out before the end of next term whether that right is incorporated against the states.
3: Is this ruling retroactive? I mean, there have been an awful lot of forfeitures that we have read about. Can people now go back to the government and say, hey, give me my my money, my things back?
0: I think not. I mean, in general, of course, the law disfavors retroactive decisions. You know, the situation here is, is conceptually, this right was incorporated in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was passed, and as Tony mentioned earlier, the, the vast majority of states have recognized that the Excessive Fines Clause applies to them. Indiana was one of just four states that had questioned that. And so, you know, that being the sort of conceptual framework that the court understands incorporation under it was incumbent on litigants to raise the excessive defines defense in the past. And um, if they didn't do that or, you know, didn't press it to uh, the full extent, then you know, the law can be a, a real a real harsh mistress about those kinds of failures.
3: Tony, Justice Thomas issued an opinion, a concurring opinion in this case, that uh, frankly I'm kind of at a loss to understand why, but can you tell us about his concurrence?
1: Yes. uh, Justice Thomas, you know, in in many ways likes to upset the apple cart and and, uh, tries to plant seeds for future cases to have the court look at uh, longstanding doctrines differently. And in this case, he objected to the fact that the incorporation of the Bill of Rights is justified through the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, and that's been accepted for a very, very long time. But Justice Thomas says, you know, excessive fines and many other provisions of the Constitution of the Bill of Rights have nothing to do with process or due process. So he would rather have this incorporation process take place. Uh, through the um, Privileges or Immunities Clause. And he he and and a number of scholars think that that's the more legitimate way of incorporating parts of the Bill of Rights to the states. It's controversial because the Supreme Court a long time ago kind of narrowly interpreted the Privileges and Immunities Clause, and nobody's really touched it ever since. But that's the kind of thing that Justice Thomas uh, likes to to stir up as as
0: sort of a thought challenge for future cases and future justices. Well, and he may have a friend now, in Justice Gorsuch, who in doing his own concurrence said, you know, Justice Thomas may be right about the textually and historically correct basis for incorporation being the privileges or immunities clause, but it doesn't really matter in this case because this right, Justice Gorsuch said, is so clearly incorporated under the due process clause as well.
3: Wesley, how did Tyson Timms react to this? And obviously, he's only been remanded. So does he have his vehicle back yet? Has he got more litigation in front of him to get it back?
0: He does have more litigation in front of him. You know, our our first move after um, getting the win was to ask the state of Indiana just to return the vehicle. I mean, this is a 2012 Land Rover that's been sitting exposed to the elements on a lot for nearly six years. It's practically worthless. But the state would like to continue to litigate over it to, they say, try to establish what the correct standard for judging excessiveness is. And if they want to dance, we can dance. You asked about Tyson's reaction. I mean, he was overjoyed. Uh, If you asked him, he would say, I rode off this vehicle a long time ago. Um, I want it back. But that's not really the issue for him. Uh, I've heard him say time and again in interviews that the issue for him is one of principle he thinks that people who commit crimes are not hopeless that you know they need to be given a realistic opportunity to rehabilitate themselves and reintegrate into society and that taking away their vehicles their cash even their homes just makes all of that more difficult i mean you know tyson has a, a litany of obligations to the government which he faithfully tries to fulfill including Going to substance abuse counseling. He's been doing volunteer work on behalf of other opioid addicts. And he's got to hold down a job. All of those things become really difficult, if not impossible, in a place like rural Indiana if, if you don't have a car.
3: Well, Wesley and uh, Tony, it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. And Tony, I'd like to throw it over to you first. Can you give us a little bit of a conclusion, wrap up for this along with your contact information?
1: Well, just to just to reiterate that uh, this really was a an important and historic decision, and in one of those cases that you know make me uh, very happy and proud that I cover the Supreme Court because of those that kind of a case that uh, goes back, as Justice Ginsburg put it, the Excessive Fines Clause has a history going back to the Magna Carta, and uh, so now there's uh, a new development in that long history. And uh, as far as where I can be found online, I'm at the National Law Journal. It's www.law.com slash National Law Journal. And uh, you'll find my stories there most of the time.
3: Great. Thank you very much, Tony. And Wesley, I'd like to turn it over to you next. And I'm kind of interested to find out what's on your radar. What's What is the Institute for Justice's next big campaign?
0: Well, um, you know, we're continuing our initiative to end civil forfeiture because while a case like this is an important benchmark, all it does is, is put a protection, a judicial protection in at the end of the civil forfeiture process where a judge can say, look, based on all of the circumstances, I think that this particular forfeiture is excessive. But nothing about our argument prevents the government from seeking serious fines for serious crimes, or for continuing, in fact, to take people's property without even charging them with a crime. And so for the long term, what we need is for lawmakers to get in the game here. And um, as lawmakers have done in states like New Mexico, North Carolina, and California recently, abolish civil forfeiture. No American should lose their property without being convicted of a crime. There's no Real need for this procedure to be turned on everyday Americans, if, if you will, common criminals, as opposed to pirate ships and, and things like that. And I think that for there to be a real improvement in property rights in this country, we need lawmakers to get in the game and, and end civil forfeiture. And if folks want to reach me, our website is www.ij.org. You can find my contact information there. We also have a website for our civil forfeiture initiative called endforfeiture.com.
3: Great. Well, thank you very much. We'd like to thank both of our guests today for being on the show talking about the Timms versus Indiana ruling, Wesley Hoddit, the senior attorney for the Institute for Justice, and Tony Morrow, Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal and Law.com. Well, that brings us to the end of our program. If you'd like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to
2: lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.